0: Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much, Zach. It's an honor to be with you at the University of Texas at Austin. I'd like for us to begin with a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is from Philippians chapter four, and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Rejoice in the Lord always, I shall say it again, rejoice. Your kindness should be known to all, the Lord is near. Have no anxiety at all, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Then the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. God of peace, we thank you for your gift of peace. We ask you now to pour forth the Holy Spirit upon us that we at this time may search and find more and more your peace in our lives. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus and we pray as he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, God. hallowed God. be thy name, thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Peace, Saints Gregor of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This talk is titled, Searching for Peace in the Lives of Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo. Peace, how do you define peace? People use the word peace in different ways, and I think it's important to be able to consider what are our uh, presupposed ideas about peace. Is peace something that uh, is very desirable? Well, usually people like peace. It's hard to hate peace. Okay. Uh, But then at the same time, what kind of peace is your peace? And then, where would you find it? How is it achieved? This talk is going to look at two fathers of the church, St. Gregory of Nazianzus and St. Augustine of Hippo, as they understood peace, and how they, in their writings, tell us about their search for peace and in how they, they find peace. We are choosing these two fathers of the church, St. Gregory of Nazianzus and St. Augustine of Hippo, because each is very influential in the Christian tradition. St. Gregory of Nazianzus is one of the Greek fathers, and it's said that in terms of Byzantine literature, that there was no greater, more numerous authority in Byzantine literature than Gregory of Nazianzus after the Bible. And that same thing can be said about St. Augustine of Hippo in terms of the Latin ecclesiastical literature. Hands down, of all fathers of the church, St. Augustine is the most influential in the Western Middle Ages. So St. Gregory of Nazianzus and St. Augustine of Hippo are two pivotal fathers of the church, very influential. They are uh, overlapping in their years and they are both in different ways trained within the Roman Empire, knowing the culture of the empire, knowing the history, the literature very well, and they're evangelizing. What's more, they want to tell us about their lives, okay? So that they want to convince people to bring people to Jesus through their foibles, through their uh, faith, that they tell us a lot about their lives. And that way then you can see how, oh, these two are comparable in various ways. In a sense, they have parallel lives. Okay, one Greek, one Roman, and that then we, in our search for peace, can be inspired by them, can learn from them, and particularly in the Christian faith, can find what they were looking for and what we're looking for today. So the talk first begins with St. Gregor of Nazianzus. I'll review things of his life, controversies, and desire for peace. And then we'll look at particular texts concerning peace in his writings. And then after that, we'll turn to St. Augustine of Hippo and I'll begin with his life, controversies, and search for peace. And then we'll look at particular texts. And then after that, we'll have a few conclusions and then we'll have time for questions and answers and discussion. We begin with St. Gregory of Nazianzus. St. Gregory of Nazianzus uh, is from this town called Nazianzus. So if you want to speak about someone who is from the town of Nazianzus, you would call him a Nazianzen. Okay, so St. Gregory can be called St. Gregory Nazianzen or St. Gregory of Nazianzus. And it's just a, a slight Latin adaptation of the original Greek. So St Gregory is from this area which is in Cappadocia which is an, a region of modern day Turkey and St Gregory was born in the late 320s we're not certain when exactly he was born his father was St Gregory the Elder of Nazianzus who came from a sect okay so that he wasn't even a full christian from christian standards but his mother was a very devoted christian by the name of saint nona and they had three children all three children are saints so saint gorgonia the oldest sister the 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 oldest one is a sister then saint Gregory nazianzus and then saint Caesarius. the reason why we know about these family members is that gregory tells us about his family a lot he tells us uh, in autobiographical poetry he tells us in terms of his his, uh, his orations. Uh, he has letters where we can trace the networking that occurred there within Cappadocia and then outside of Cappadocia. He uh, received some of the best education possible of his time. So he was trained first in Cappadocia and then went to uh, uh, Caesarea. He first studied in that uh, Caesarea there in Asia Minor, and then went to maritime or Palestinian Caesarea, then to Alexandria Egypt, and then to Athens. When he was in Athens, the man who uh, history knows as Julian the Apostate, Emperor Julian, was also studying in Athens. And there, a fellow Cappadocian came to live with Gregory, Basil. Basil, who became later Bishop of Caesarea commonly called Basil the Great. And one of the reasons why we call Basil Basil the Great is because Gregor Nazianzus said the great Basil. Right, so, uh, so they had uh, various experiences. Gregory tells you about his complaints a lot, okay? He tells you about his fears, his angers, how people rubbed him the wrong way. Uh, he, he exposes his soul in its various anxieties in a way that's very fascinating for people. Um, and, uh, and he tells us that, well, one of the things that, that helped him in terms of getting religion was a boat ride from Alexandria to Athens in the early winter, when you're really not supposed to be on the water. And, uh, and so he's there and he makes a promise to be baptized because he thinks he's going to die, okay? So uh, he lives uh, a life that is dedicated to Christ uh, uh, with Basil there in Athens. Basil leaves Athens earlier, but then Gregory leaves Athens and they return to Cappadocia. In late 361, so like late December 361, Greg of Nazianzus was ordained by his father, the elder Gregory of Nazianzus. And Gregory was spooked. Ah, I'm ordained? Oh, I don't want to do this. I want to leave. And so he leaves. He goes to find his friend Basil. Basil comforts him. It'll be okay, Gregory. And they have, uh, he's fortified by this friendship and then he returns in time for Pascha, Easter in 362. Gregory then has a sense of his mission, his ministry. He was extremely well-trained in the art of oratory, and he could talk like no other. So he uh, has these orations that are very sophisticated in Greek, and he wants to show how uh, anything that the pagans did, he and other Christians can do it better. Now, Julian, who was uh, there studying in Athens, arose to become the emperor of of Rome. So he had a short reign from 361 to 363. He died on the battlefield in June of 363 while in the Persian campaign. But before he died, he forbade Christians from teaching the classics. And Gregory very much resented that. And he wanted to show how he belonged to the Logos. The Greek word Logos means word. It can mean oration. It can mean reason. It can mean all sorts of things. And Gregory just loved to be able to tell people how, as Christians, we belong to the Logos. And so everything reasonable belongs to us. And then he had this great campaign to be able to get people on board with this. Now, a problem was that even within the church, there were all sorts of ideas about what it means to be a Christian. This was a tumultuous time. You have bishops fighting each other about what it means to believe in God. What is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And so Gregory even had to help his elder father, Gregory, who, well, he didn't quite believe the right thing at the time. So Gregory then had to uh, assist his father to make sure that he would believe the right creed and then was trying to manage all sorts of things. Well, he was becoming more and more prominent and his friend Basil uh, became the Archbishop of Caesarea there. And Basil wanted Gregory then to become a bishop and that way the land would be protected. He he wanted Gregory to be Bishop of Sazima. Have you ever heard of Sazima? No one else has either. Okay, so Gregory complains that Sagma, Sazima is a dirt hole. Okay, uh, the only thing going for it was that it had a crossroads, and he was insulted by this. So he tells again. He tells you all sorts of things uh, that, about what he doesn't like, and uh, and Basil's theology actually. Uh, He was writing to Basil at different times, Basil, okay, these monks are wondering why I'm protecting you, okay? Why don't you just say that the Holy Spirit is God and consubstantial? Because the Holy Spirit is God. He is consubstantial with the Father and the Son, but you're not saying it. I know you believe it. I know you're an important person, okay? And you have to be political and protect things, but please just say it because I'm tired of, of protecting you. He never did say it. Three years after Basil dies, on probably January 1st uh, uh, in uh, 379, uh, three years after that, Gregory writes his oration, his funeral oration on the on the in praise of the great Basil. So three years after Basil dies, he writes his funeral oration. And he then tells people that Basil really did believe in this, okay? And that he and Basil believed the same thing. Uh, But you can look back and say, well, actually their theologies are a bit different. Basil uh, had died before the 381 Ecumenical Council of Constantinople. So in the church, the fourth century was the beginning of ecumenical councils. So in 325, you have Nicaea. Well, 381 was Constantinople. Gregory had left the area uh, where he was and he was basically sent or invited to Constantinople and when Emperor Theodosius then came into power he made Gregory the bishop of Constantinople and so Gregory then was host to this ecumenical council. The original presider Melidius of Antioch dies so who's going to be the presider of the council? Gregory. Gregory then finds out that the bishops don't like him Okay, so he then uh, uh, has to leave the council and he leaves Constantinople in a huff and he complains about the bishops. One year later, after the Council of Constantinople, he's invited back for a, a synod, a follow-up synod, and he writes in a letter, no good has ever been done by a synod of bishops. All right, this is Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the great doctors of the church, all right? So he, uh, he tells you all sorts of his complaints he, he gets into all sorts of controversies. While he was in Constantinople, he preached a lot. He especially preached against the Eunomians, who are extreme Arians, And so he then is having these controversies, trying to, trying to show forth the glory of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's also doing Christological fights, okay? because you have the Apollinarians. Apollinarius of Laodiceus said that when the Word was made flesh, The word did not take upon himself a human rational soul. Okay, Gregory thought that was absurd. And then there were other people who were thinking that there were two sons. So Jesus is son of God, son of man, and that you really shouldn't say that it's just one son. Okay, Gregory thought that was absurd. And he tells you uh, about all the absurdities that are going on in the church led by various bishops. So Gregory tells you this again and again and again. In his last years, he dedicates himself especially to writing. Okay, so today we have over 17,000 lines of poetry. Okay, so I want to share with you just the beginning and the end passages of his poem titled On Human Nature. And you can think about him in terms of his search for peace. So this translation is done by Peter Gilbert. On Human Nature, here's the beginning. Yesterday, worn out with anxieties, away from others, I was in a shady grove, my soul consumed. For how I do so love this drug for sufferings, to speak in quiet, me with my own soul. And the breezes whispered while the birds sang, granting from the branches a sound slumber, though for a soul quite weary. While from the trees, deep chanting, clear-toned, lovers of the sun, whirring locusts, made the whole wood to resound. Nearby flowed cold water by one's feet, gently coursing through the cool grove. But as for me, the strong sorrow I had, I had it still. Therefore, I didn't care about these things, since a mind cloaked round with sorrows doesn't want to sing back happily. But privately, my mind in a whirlpool spinning, I had the sort of battling round of words. Who was I? Who am I? What shall I be? I don't know clearly. Clearly nor can I find one better stocked with wisdom, but as through thick thick fog, I wander every which way with nothing, not a dream of the things I long for. For all of us are groundlings, vagabonds, over whom the swart cloud of the fat flesh hangs. Okay, in this poem then, he goes to talk about God, about Christ, about uh, various truths, Uh, So in terms of Christ, Christ blending his own form with ours so that God by his passion might give me a defense against my passions and perfect me as God by his human image. Okay, so he goes into all these things. Now listen to the end of this poem. Where will you stop while carrying me further, bad counseling worry? Stop! Everything is secondary to God. Give in to reason. God didn't make me in vain. I am turning my back upon this song. This thing was from our feeble-mindedness. Now's a fog, but afterwards the word, and you'll know all, whether seeing God or eaten up by fire. Now when the beloved mind had sung for me these things, it digest, digested its pain, and late from the shady grove I headed home, now laughing at this self-estrangement, then once again heart and anguish smoldering from a mind at war. Over 17,000 lines of poetry. Uh, He is very autobiographical. 99 of the poems are called De Seyipso, so on himself, within the the tradition. But he's always talking about himself. In the poetry, in his orations, in his letters. Uh, So in terms of the 44 orations, he says in one of them, I'm the kind of person who always refers everything to himself. He really did. Okay, so this is where, in terms of the exposure, he wanted people to know, and he wanted people to know that he was in pain, that he was hurting, that he he was sick a lot. Okay, so he had different kinds of illness. He wanted people to know how he had lots of enemies, how he couldn't trust the fellow bishops. He wanted people to know that his best friend Basil hurt him. Okay, and then uh, it's like... uh, how could, how could Basil, the best friend, hurt me? But he, but he lets people know that. He, when Basil dies, uh, he writes a poem about how, uh, in terms of Basil, uh, I would think that a body could live without a soul more than I could live without you, oh dear Basil, sweet servant of Christ. right? So he, he's mourning. All of the different human emotions are just plopped out there. okay? And then you think, Okay, that that he has a way of exposing his inner turmoil and also the turmoils of the church. Now, what I want us to do is to look at some key texts about peace. And in these texts, uh, the surprise may be that it's usually about God and true faith in God. All right? So, Of the 44 orations that we have from Gregory of Nazianzus, three are titled in the manuscript tradition on peace. Orations 6, 22, and 23. And he also writes about peace and conflict in many ways, almost always in terms of professing right faith in God so that he and his people might be united in the church. So when Gregory has peace in mind, he has peace on all sorts of levels, peace within the soul, uh, which a lot of people think about peace. Peace in the church. So that the peace of the church is when the church is united by right faith to God and that people are not fighting one another because they are united with this correct faith, this orthodox faith, the Catholic teaching in who God is and are being led by Christ back to the Father in the Holy Spirit. All right, so... Uh Gregory sees God to be peace. Now, think about this. The pagans have all sorts of deities, and they're often at war with one another, or there are various kinds of lusts involved in terms of the gods. Not the Christian God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly one God. There's no violence. There's no uh, there, There's no enmity. God is one, and that one is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you see that sense of peace? So, uh, so Gregory wants us to be able to appreciate well that that God is the God of peace, and He gives us the gift of peace. In Oration Twenty Two he has a rhetorically lavish opening addressed to beloved peace, so the Greek word for peace. We get our word irenic from it. And in, uh, in three times within the rhetoric, rhetorical device of an anaphora, he says beloved peace, beloved peace, beloved peace. Here's the second way of looking at beloved peace in the anaphora. Beloved peace, my preoccupation, my glory. We hear that it belo- both belongs to God and characterizes God. It represents, in fact, the very essence of God. As the scriptural expressions, the peace of God and the God of peace, and he is our peace, a test, though this is not the way that we give honor. So what Gregory means is that God is peace. And we can find this in the scriptures again and again and again different ways, but we don't reflect that. If we were really true to our name of being Christian, if we were really divinized, deified, by the way, Gregory of Nazianzus was the one who invented the term Theosis in Greek, okay? So the usual word that people use for divinization. Uh, Gregory is the first instance of this. And that if we really were a faithful to God, then we would be at peace with one another in God. Now, remember how he said that Gregory wanted to, to uh, show that Christians could do everything that the pagans could do in terms of their literature, in terms of scholarship, but do it better. Well, he uh, is doing this in all sorts of ways. In terms of Oration 22, I think he has uh, something about comedy here. Okay, so, is it merely coincidental that Gregory's phrase, beloved peace, seems to appear in extant writings before Gregory, only in Aristophanes' comedy, Peace? written during the First Peloponnesian War, performed in 421 BC, near the end of those 10 years of war, and one other place, those on Drunkenness. Later in the oration, Gregory says, this is why past events are shrouded in silence, while recent ones are given the color of comedy. My personal tragedy is just that to my enemies, a comedy. Or later in the oration, who can find words equal to the tragedy? Robbers enjoy peace united by the criminality, as do the henchmen of tyranny, or concerts in fraud, or conspirators in sedition, or partners in adultery, and one might add bands of horses and troops of soldiers and complements of ships. Right. What Gregory is doing is he's going back to this philosophical understanding. So you can think of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics about friendships and how even robbers have a sort of friendship and peace because they're agreeing upon one thing. Okay, they they want peace too. Well. Gregory is saying you have all these sorts of peoples who are doing sinful acts who still want peace, but look at Christians, okay? Look at my life, he says. Uh, It's a tragedy, though some people think it's a comedy, okay? And he's all doing this with uh, just great Greek finesse, okay? So in terms of bringing people into this classical culture for a purpose of evangelization, So sometimes people will talk about uh, Hellenizing the gospel. Well, another way of thinking of this is evangelizing uh, Greek culture. Evangelizing Greek culture. And then how you can learn about this in terms of our culture and bringing the gospel to this culture that we have. In terms of Oration 6, here's another example. Um, For not only is there no discord in Godhead, and as a result, no dissolution, since dissolution is the child of discord, but so great is the element of harmony, both internally and in relation to the secondary beings, that this is the very virtue that joins, indeed takes precedence over the other forms of address that find favor with God. For he is called peace and love and the like, and through these designations inspires us to adopt the virtues they represent, because they are his own. So for Gregory, God is peace. One God, three persons, no conflict, no conflict whatsoever. And that God is establishing creation. And now because creation has fallen, redemption. So that way, this, uh, that we are brought back to God in peace. Our divinization then is to resemble God and to be loving, to be peacemakers. Uh, Oration 22 For it is God who first and foremost will decide and settle these issues. He who establishes a bond between all things, and second, those of mankind who work for the good and recognize the blessings of Concord. These blessings originate with the Holy Trinity, whose unity of nature and internal peace are its most salient characteristic, are received by the angelic and divine powers who are peaceably disposed towards God, as well as one another, extend to the whole of creation, whose glory is its absence of conflict and regulate our own life in our soul, on the one hand, through the reciprocal and cooperative allegiance of its virtues, in our body, on the other, through the happy marriage, of form and function of its constituent members, of these the former both is, and is called beauty, the latter health. What Gregory is doing is showing how, in terms of there's a cosmic dimension of peace, because God is the creator. He wants everything to be well-ordered. He doesn't want uh, a revolution or violence he wants things to be working together. Again and again, you can see different things on this. So down in terms of Oration 22, chapter 15, Gregory says, it is also absurd that each and every person strives for inner peace, peace being our individual goal, along with the mastery of the passions, but does not show himself the same to others, believing instead that his neighbor's ruination is his own renown and that God forbids, bids us forgive even those who trespass against us not just seven times, but with a frequency based on the conviction that forgiving is the guarantor of our being forgiven, while we, on the other hand, are more eager to maltreat even those who do us no harm than to receive kindness from others. It is equally absurd to know that the blessedness reserved for the peacemakers is so great that they alone of the ranks of the saved are called the sons of God, while we, on the other hand, relish hostility and then imagine that we are actually doing things dear to God, him who suffered for our sake, that he might reconcile us to himself, and dissolve the war in our hearts, okay? In other words, Gregory's saying, yes, we want peace in our hearts, but look at the state of the church. People are fighting one another. People are not forgiving one another. People are not loving one another. This is harmful. This is, this is hypocrisy, right? So he's saying it a thousand different ways, that, that the church is actually not experiencing the peace that God is intending and Gregory is calling it out, right? So that's especially in terms of peace for Gregory. Our next father of the church is St. Augustine of Hippo. Okay, St. Augustine of Hippo, he's more familiar uh, here than St. Gregory of Nazianzus, but I want to review again, life controversies and desire for peace. St. Augustine tells us what his birthday was, so in the day Beata Vita, he says it's the eyes of November. So if you ever want to celebrate St. Augustine's birthday, November 13th is his birthday. He was born in 354 to Patricius, who was a, a pagan, and Monica, St. Monica. And he was from uh, the place of Tagast in North Africa, so in a part of modern-day Algeria. Okay, so Algeria. Uh, that... Uh, Augustine grew up, he hated Greek, so he just really didn't like learning Greek at all. But he loved Virgil and the Latin classics, and he just immersed himself and got, uh, because his family had a patron, Romanianus, he was able to have a little boost, okay? So he got, like, scholarships to go higher and higher and higher. And then he was able to teach rhetoric. Now, along the way, uh, some things happened in his life. Okay, so as a teenager, uh, it doesn't look like he always got along with his dad. His dad didn't really understand him. And then his dad died when he was a teenager. And then Augustine became a teenage father. So he had an unnamed girl, uh, and they had uh, a sexual relationship that uh, lasted for many years. Uh, their, Their son was Adeodatus, whose name means given by God a deodotus. And Augustine, when he was a baby, was salted. So he was formally entered into the catechumenate uh, and he considered himself a believer. He loved the name of Jesus, but, and he would go to mass. He didn't pay attention at mass. He tells us of something that's really strange about uh, what was going on um, in church one day. But he uh, uh, read Cicero as a teenager, the work Hortentius, which, which was a proscript for the life of wisdom, and then he's like, "I know what I'm to do. I am to embrace wisdom." He turned to the Bible, and went, ugh, ugh, ugh. Yuck. Okay, it wasn't Cicero. It, he didn't. He did, he, he, and he looked back and said he didn't have the humility to accept what was in the Bible. So what did he do? He turned to Manichaeanism. Now, have you ever met Manichaeans? Uh, Anarcheanism during Augustine's time was a major world religion, and it lasted for centuries in different places. It stretched from China to the Atlantic Ocean, and someone as smart as Augustine would be in it for nine years. So it was separated into the hearers and the elect, and he was a hearer for nine years. And he tells us about this in the Confessions. Um, and, uh, And so... Uh, He was able to be rescued from it, thanks especially to his mother's prayers, and then frankly, he got away from from North Africa. Uh, He went to Rome, and then he he made it really big. He became the orator for the imperial court in Milan. Now, Monica, his mother, chased after him, and she did not like that common-law wife, so she sent her back to Africa. And Augustine says that it was like his heart ripped out of him, trailing blood. And he did not have the virtue of chastity, and so he took up a mistress while waiting uh, and hoping to be baptized. So Augustine was experiencing all sorts of conflicts in his life. Uh, He tells us about this, of course, in the Confessions, And the entire work of the Confessions can be read as Augustine's search for peace. Listen to Henry Chadwick's translation of the first paragraph of the Confessions. You are great, Lord, and highly to be praised. Great is your power, and your wisdom is immeasurable. Man, a little piece of your creation, desires to praise you, a human being bearing his mortality with him, carrying with him the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist the proud. Nevertheless, to praise you is the desire of man, a little piece of your creation. You stir a man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So in terms of this restlessness, uh, he's searching for peace. He wants the peace of God's rest. Uh, Let's take one example from the Confessions, book six. Book six is when he's in Milan and Monica comes across the Mediterranean. she calms the sailors who are upset because they think that the boat may collapse. Okay, so remember gregor Nazianzus was on a, a terrible boat ride in the Mediterranean. Well, Monica is uh, now, but she is now the model of peace, and Augustine is all anxious in Milan. Okay, he describes himself in terms of being an insomniac, twisting, going uh, on the back, all these things. He he's restless, absolutely restless. He sees, while having this great position of being the imperial orator, a drunkard on the streets, and the drunkard says, good day, would you give me some money? And Augustine then compared his life with that of the drunkard beggar, and he wondered which one of us is happier. He realized that by being employed with the emperor's court, that he was um, he was telling lies, and he just, he didn't like it. He had some friendships. He always was devoted to friendships, uh, and Alypius uh, was a, a great friend of his uh, that actually would accompany him when he was converted there in the garden, okay? Because Augustine was a little bit away in the garden, and he heard tole lege, pick up and read, pick up a read, and then St. Augustine picked up the letter of the Roman letter of St. Paul to the Romans. And then after that, Olypius read on, and he saw that he also received a grace of conversion. Now, Augustine, uh, in terms of his life, still was searching for peace. He was baptized in Milan. So the great preacher Ambrose was there in Milan. And Augustine was baptized on April 24th, 387. Soon after that, his mother died. And then after living in Rome again for a bit, he went back to North Africa, never to return to Italy. Augustine wanted to set up a, a monastic community. So in terms of the rules, St. Augustine, he was ordained a priest in Hippo. And, uh, and he was surprised by it, that, uh, that, that, he was, that, they, that they pounced on him. And, and so he was ordained a priest. And then the Bishop of Hippo was an older Greek actually Valerius, who didn't speak Latin well, and he knew that he had this great orator. And so then uh, Augustine became basically the coadjutor bishop for Hippo, and after Valerius died, Augustine became the bishop of Hippo, Regius. So in terms of Hippo is a Punic word that means port, it's along the Mediterranean, the royal port. Augustine, during his life as bishop, so uh, he engaged in all sorts of controversies. He wanted to fight against the Manichaeans. He wanted to fight against the Donatists. So the Donatists were schismatics there in North Africa. Uh, The Pelagians came up. Just again and again, there were various controversies. My argument is that in every single controversy, you can see his desire for peace. Now, his most famous prayer comes in Book 10 of the Confessions, where you have the beginning, late have I loved you, late have I loved you. Well, he says at the end of that paragraph of prayer, you touched me and I was set afire for your peace. And uh, looking back on his earliest work that he speaks of by title, but which he says is lost, on the beautiful and the harmonious, he reflected that in this lost work, he loved the peace that accompanied virtue and hated the discord inseparable from a vicious way of life. Okay, so uh, just every single grouping of his writings can be considered in terms of peace. So he had an estate uh, where he and his family and friends were staying between the time of leaving the imperial court and being baptized in April of 387 at Costiciacum. All of those dialogues, in some ways, are expressing peace. So one of the Latin words for peace uh, is otsium. The usual Latin word is pax, but in terms of otsium, a leisure. And he looks back on these writings, uh, the first one against the academics, and in his revisions, he recounted that he was brought as a human to the peace of the Christian life. So ad Christiane vitae otsium. When he writes against Faustus, the Manichaean bishop, He he hears that Faustus has a self-description as a peacemaker. And Augustine says, how can I see him as a peacemaker who thinks that the divine nature itself, by which God, who alone truly exists, is whatever he is, could not have perpetual peace? Because manichees are dualists, and they think that even God is in some way materialist, a spiritual materiality, and that (coughs) there's a split of God. Your soul, by the way, for a manichee, is a little bit of God. Okay, so that God has been broken up into bits and you have this cosmic conflict between light and darkness. Uh, in terms of the Donatus works, that Augustine responds that when you are in schism, you are offending peace. Come back to the Pax Catholica, the Catholic peace. Perhaps the most famous treatment of peace, properly speaking, in all of Augustine's writings, and we have about five million words from Augustine, is City of God, Book 19. So City of God is in 22 books, and I've particularly written on Book 19 as Augustine's argument for peace. In Book 19, Augustine concentrates on leading two audiences, both beset by different forms of violence, unrest and insecurity within and without, to accept God's offer of the peace that endures in heaven's everlasting life as the supreme good. Principally, this appeal for peace has a protracted quality to attract a non-Christian audience. Especially for their sake, Augustine uses, in addition to the divine authority of scripture, the reason of philosophical argument in Book 19. Secondarily, the appeal has a didactic exhortation for Christian audience to seek more ardently the peace of the heavenly Jerusalem. For Augustine, by the way, Jerusalem means vision of peace. Okay, he used to th- think it was city of peace, but he wanted to emphasize more this etymology of vision of peace, to be able to, to see God. And then by seeing God, by being joined to God, then you have that fullness of peace. He says, even the pilgrim church has sheer misery compared to the happiness we call ultimate. So Augustine, in terms of the city of God, sometimes people will talk about the two cities, city of God and the earthly city, and they see that dichotomy. And they don't appreciate as much how Augustine shows that within the city of God, there's a dichotomy. There's the city of God journeying, so in spay, in hope, and then the city of God at rest, in re, in reality, at heaven. And compared to the peace that is in heaven, this city of God journeying during this life on earth is in misery, misery. And by the way, when he looks back on his earlier writings and he sees what he wrote as a priest before he, was being, before he became a bishop, that he says, you know, when, a, when, when you have a wise man all put together, he's at peace. And during the Pelagian controversy, he came to understand more clearly that nobody during this life on earth is at perfect peace. It doesn't matter how wise you are. You cannot have perfect peace upon this earth. So if you think that you're going to achieve perfect peace right now, you're deluding yourself because this world is not the world for peace, not perfect peace. We can have an approximation of it, we can long for it, we can find it in some sense, again, the peace of the Christian life, but don't confuse that for the peace of heaven. All right, so this is where in terms of Augustine's argument, yes, you can find peace in the church, But that peace in the the, the church here on earth is an anticipation of a much greater, a much solid, uh, a firm fullness of peace. So he has definitions of peace on all sorts of levels. He gives 10. Peace of the body, okay? And, And it goes from the lowest to the highest. Peace of the body, properly ordered arrangements of its parts. Peace of the irrational soul, properly ordered satisfaction of the appetites. Peace of the rational soul, properly ordered accord of cognition and action. Peace of the body and soul together, properly ordered life and well-being of a living creature. Peace of the mortal human with God, properly ordered obedience and faith under eternal law. Peace among humans, properly ordered concord of mind with mind. Peace of the household, properly ordered concord, with respect to command and obedience of those who are living together. Peace of the city, properly ordered concord, with respect to command and obedience of the citizens. Peace of the heavenly city, perfectly ordered and wholly concordant fellowship in the enjoyment of God and of each other in God, meaning also angels, so the saints and angels. And so you have this cosmic um, way of thinking about all angels and saints being together, enjoying God and one another in God forever and ever as our final good. And then finally, he gives this understanding of peace of all things, the tranquility of order. All right, so that becomes very famous, that peace is tranquility of order. And then how Augustine then has this from all different ways of, of seeing it. All right, now just a few points in terms of conclusion to, um, to unite Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo, and then we'll have time for Q&A and discussion precisely in terms of thinking about well, what does it mean for us? Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo both have really comprehensive understandings of peace. This is not. Um, this is not something uh, that's just a throwaway light consideration. We're talking about reality. We're talking about God. We're talking about God's order. We're talking about everything Everything is related to peace. Everything, and so peace then is, from this cosmic, from this divine sense and cosmic sense. Um, then uh, can reorder then our own understanding of, frankly, the problems within our heart. Because both Gregory and Augustine, again, tell us all sorts of things about the problems of their hearts. You know, they, they are very autobiographical. And that's, I think, why so many people love Gregory and Augustine is because of just being able to hear them talk about their woes, okay, their search for peace. And then to be able to see how well, actually they didn't fully find everything because you can't during this life on earth, but this life on earth isn't everything. It's a preparation for the fullness of peace in heaven. Both Gregory of Nazianzus and Augustine of Hippo um, then are inspired to work for peace So that way that this, in the church, we can be more like heaven. So rather than just giving up, okay, rather than being nihilists, uh, uh, they wanted to be able to see it's only in heaven that we have the fullness, but we're meant during this life on earth to have a foretaste of that piece of heaven. And And they dedicated their lives for that. So sometimes people use the phrase, you know, if you want peace, work for justice, all right? Um, uh, that's true. The problem is that if you just think about it in terms of a sort of justice that is a matter of a worldly justice, because for both Gregory and Augustine, it's about God. God is peace. The God, the, may the God of peace make you perfect in holiness, for Thessalonians or what we heard from the letter to the Philippians about the peace of god will guard your hearts in christ jesus uh, you know so so it's about god and then in terms of our own relationship with god and then how by that we're called to be in, in relationship with one another peace then for both of them is a gift of christ for his church so when saint augustine uh, reads from john's gospel our lord's words peace i leave you my peace i give to you for augustine The first use of peace, he says, you can can interpret it in other ways, but I like to interpret it in this way. Peace is the peace that is here on this earth. But my peace, when Christ says, my peace I give to you, he's talking about his peace in heaven. So that he's giving us not only grace of peace, the grace of peace during this life on earth, but his peace of glory in heaven. Okay, my peace I give to you. And that's where, in terms of, he's, give, he's, he's wanting us to enter into heaven. Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. And then how we then can be inspired by this. Inspired that there is a peace that exists. It's heaven. And we're called to live for that. Thank you. Yes? Um, What role does um, does theosis through play for Augustine and how does that relate to his piece? Great, okay, so that's huge. Now, theosis is a Greek word and Augustine uh, didn't like Greek. So he has more uses of deificare, so the verb to deify or deificatio, than any other Latin uh, before his time. But more than that, uh, he understands that we're called uh, by our loves, so he has various formulations, uh, and this is all related to peace. So he says, if you love the things of earth, you will become earthly. If you love the things of God, you'll become godly. Right. So this is where, in terms of, Augustine has a very keen sense of sin. And sin is a preference for a creature over, what, uh, uh, over over the creator, okay? So he has this distinction of, of udi and frui, to use and to enjoy, and that we are to use the things of this world in order to enjoy God, meaning to cling to God for his own sake. But you don't use God to get something else, okay? You don't use God to get something else, you use things to get to God. And then how we can have this peace by being deified because God wants us to be like him. And so to uh, to use an example from City of God, if you go to book 22 of the City of God, um, that you would see at the end how the fulfillment of what God intended in Genesis is now going to occur in paradise. That, that Then we become gods or children of God in in this really wonderful sense. Right? So, uh, or in terms of the end of the confessions, uh, that you also have the sense because book 13 of the confessions runs through the hexameron, the six days of creation, to get to the rest. And then Uh, uh, in the last paragraphs of the Confessions. Lord God, grant us peace, for you have given us all things, the peace of quietness, the peace of the Sabbath, a peace with no evening. This entire most beautiful order of very good things will complete its course and then pass away, for in them by creation there is both morning and evening. The seventh day has no evening and has no ending. You sanctified it to abide everlasting. After your very good works which you made while remaining yourself in repose, you rested the seventh day. This utterance in your book foretells for us that after our works, which, because they are your gift to us, are very good, we may also rest in you for the Sabbath of eternal life. There also you will rest in us, just as now you work in us. Your rest will be through us, through us, just as now your works are done through us." Right, so this is where in terms of entering into his rest, that this peace that God will be all in all, so that uh, at the last day, a day that will have no night, the everlasting day, God will rest in us, that he himself is his rest, his peace, and that he incorporates us into this, okay? That this is where we don't lose our individual identity, you know, and Augustine is very keen about talking about our individuality, in terms of the resurrection of the body. So men and women will rise up as men and women and all these things about particular particular things, but that we will be all one, be the one Christ loving himself in praise, that all of heaven will be amen, alleluia. Yes. Blending the two ideas together with St. Augustine uh, and his, his knowledge of our limitations of peace on earth and St. Gregory's commentary on how Christians do everything they do better. How do how you see Christians living out peace on um, this life better, um, knowing that there are limitations to the ways that we can live out peace, or example, peace? That's great. Thank you. So this is where just in turn one little qualification, Gregory thinks that the church has this peace, but Christians continue to sin and are not at peace with one another. So that's where in terms of the, that, that we are meant to have, uh, we are meant to be peacemakers. We're meant to receive the gift of peace and to give that peace to one another. And that that's something that's far different from what the pagans have. And this is where in terms of going back to deification, uh, you could just ask someone who has some sense of the divine, what's your divine like? Do you want to be like that? And so in terms of the, the imperial gods, do you want to be like those imperial gods? And it's like, oh, well, actually, uh, they had all sorts of family problems. They did strange things. They were violent. They were, they, well, they were sinful. And, and, and both Gregory and Augustine see, yeah, they are demons. They're, they're, those, those are false gods. And do not conform your life to that. But it's a form of deification. Okay, in terms of, yet yeah, you become you become like the God that you have in mind. And, and this is where in terms of for Gregory and Augustine, that they both have the sense of grace, where God in his grace then can give us a conversion from sin, and to be at peace within our soul because of the presence of Christ, that his Holy Spirit comes to us and conforms us to Christ. And that way we can be focused on going back to the Father who cannot be seen, but who's waiting for us in the eternal heaven. Okay, so that's where in terms of uh, of the mystery of the faith, but frankly, uh, Gregory and Augustine can look at all sorts of Christians uh, and say, You know, are these people, are they really living as Christians? And then they also talk about their own lives. Augustine uh, was very uh, concerned when people praised him. It's like, you don't know my heart, right? I was just reading one of the letters to Augustine where the the correspondent was praising him with all these different titles. And he said, please stop it. You have no idea. I'm a sinful man. Okay, so that's where in terms of of just thinking about the reality and to be able to appreciate both, what we're called to be and then how uh, we live in a fragile world with fragility throughout our whole being. And that's why there's a search for peace. Yes? For the sake of the orthodoxy, right worship of God, how should Christians um, engage in personal correction or conflict with peace? That's great. Okay, so that's where in terms of being able to talk about uh, at times Christians don't believe the same thing and some of these things are really, really important, like God, all right? So uh, so to be able in terms of fraternal correction because Gregory and Augustine had to practice a lot of that uh, precisely in the roles as bishops who were theologians, who were very influential and who had to say, that's wrong. Okay? That's actually dividing the church. And today you can think about how there are different problems that come up and you need to be able to practice in peace a fraternal correction because it's about real peace. All right, Because sometimes people will weasel things. It's like, oh, um, uh, well, I just won't say anything because I just want to keep the peace. Have you ever heard this? Yeah. That's not peace. That's not Christian peace. Remember, robbers have peace. Adulterers have peace. It's in terms of that they have some concord of agreeing on the same thing. The question is, is that what you agree upon actually in accordance with God? OK, robbers agree upon their theft and they protect one another in their theft. But the theft is not in accordance with God. Okay. Adulterers are doing something very different from married people, okay? So God intends marriage. And then you can think about uh, about how that then can be divine precisely in in peace. But but you could have adulterers, you could have a whole society that is convinced that adultery is fine, but that's still not true peace. Yeah, that would be their approach to this. And then you could think about the ramifications for our lives. Yes? I'm curious about how to understand the relationship between peace and the concept and, saying, and just yeah, to like happiness. Are they basically the same things, but they're different ways? Yeah, so they're very similar. So uh, so that's where in terms of sometimes uh, in the tradition, there's a greater emphasis on happiness. So in Latin, beatudo, uh And then peace is uh, an, uh, something that accompanies it. And and so that's fine. I think that sometimes people have heard about happiness in a way that they isn't very convincing, but they haven't yet given up on peace. Okay? And this is where for Augustine in City of God he says that you're never too evil not to desire peace, and you're never too good not to desire peace. In terms of the evil, he, he goes back to Virgil's Aeneid Kacus. Cacus is evil and person. Evil personified. Okay. the Greek word for evil one is Cacus. Right? So in Latin, Cacus is the son of Vulcan, who's a monster on the Aventine Hill in Rome, who wants peace. What does he want? He wants peace. So if you come at, the, if you come up to him, what is he going to do? He's going to eat you. Okay. Because he's hungry and he doesn't want to be disturbed. He wants peace. Even Cacus, even even evil personified wants peace. And then in terms of um, the holiest saints here upon earth, they don't yet have heaven's peace. And so, so then in terms of, of Augustine being able to, to get people to think about how, okay, yes, everybody wants to be happy, but let's think of it uh, in terms of peace. All right? And I think, I think more can be done with that today. okay So in terms of just the, the beauty of peace, and, and also to be able to connect things, particularly in terms of the, the church, because sometimes we have justice and peace. Uh, it's interesting, for St. Thomas Aquinas, peace is an effect of charity, okay? So in terms of one of the interior effects of, of charity. Um, in the early church, uh, it is about love, but I find it very often about faith, okay? So that the peace of the church means that the church is united in the right faith, so in terms of the Orthodox Catholic faith. Yeah, i was just curious i guess following up on this i've always struggled a little with just getting a full account of augustine's argument from book 19 about peace he says all beings desire peace yeah okay. and i guess i'd just like to hear how you understand the way he makes that argument and maybe i can make that a little more specific yeah. um so it's also true right that sinful people are all afflicted with i think they're all afflicted with you know, dominamity yep sorry. Uh, so how does that Means that, how yeah. is that related to the desire? Right. Great. Go okay. Ahead. Okay. So let's think about war. Do you have peace in order to have war, or do you have war in order to have peace? Saint in book nineteen, says everybody who goes to war goes to war for their peace. Okay. Now it could be a right. Uh, so in terms of that, something is uh, violent and needs to be corrected by by force. But everybody who goes to war goes to war, in some sense, for peace. And, um, and, but this is where, in terms of whose will do you want, do you want to say, thy will be done and be conformed to God's will, or do you want your own libido, your own um, sinful desires to be able to control other people? Okay. So this is where, in terms of control, uh, that for Augustine, uh, the libido dominandi shows the corruption at the very core of original sin, where people want to control and manipulate uh, by using their will to, uh, for their own purposes, their own pleasures. Okay, So, so in terms of peace for Augustine, um, that the world, uh, the earthly city, is dominated by this desire for control. Okay, for control and whoever has power has control and then they can, and notice then that well, some, in some sense that's a sort of peace but compared to the true peace that's no peace at all okay so in terms of, of, of justice uh, that you can have something that is controlled but still fundamentally not in conformity to God. And so he always goes back to that question of is it in, in conformity to God or is it in just in conformity with your own Self-love, okay? Because as he says at the book, end of book 14 of City of God, two loves built the two cities, okay? Sometimes people just talk about love. He says, oh, everybody loves. The question is, what kind of love? Do you have the love of God at work? You know, Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts and the Holy Spirit given to us. Is it that love? Because that's the love that has built the heavenly city, the city of God, or is it love of self? Okay. In terms of that, your, your main thing is self-love, uh, a love that is worldly, a love for what you want. And that's where in terms of just basic questions, do you want to give up your will to do God's will, or do you want people to do your will? Do you want God, actually, to be, do you want to use God to have your will be done? Yep. I mean, so sort the of libido dominante for him is a kind of love of peace, and yes. not like just a desire to. I, I mean, you could give. I can, I could imagine an account of that, like it's a desire to be at war with someone and crushing them, right? Okay, but, but, it's but not, that. But this is where that St. Augustine would see that that even the worst sinner uh, uh, would would want peace. So in terms of that. That, and this is where, well, what about war? There are some people who actually um, could get a kick, could, could enjoy a war, okay? Now, it's, it just sounds so strange, um, but his point is in terms of that people act in different ways, and those who are controlled by the libido dominandi are themselves dominated, uh, uh, and so they have been, um, they have been conquered by the evil one, And they then want other people to be conformed to their will, which is evil. As opposed to surrendering to God, being a sacrifice. So St. Augustine says, God wants one thing, your broken heart. The sacrifice of your life. To sacrifice your life at the altar. Because Christ is the one mediator that man, Christ Jesus, has come to be the perfect sacrifice, to, to he, she, he has shed his blood, so that way we may then be conformed to the divine will in him, in his sacrifice, in the cross. Okay, that, so that's Augustine's argument. Yes? So with something like the, uh, the Pax Romana, or kind of these efforts to create a temporal, these physical order, yes. these instances of, uh, like um, like a, a kind of piece that seeks to, that seeks peace through conformity, say like a little Caesar or something. That's right. Or is it? Can you can you just yes. like talk more about that? Right. So this is if you go back to City of God, twenty two books, uh, the first ten books. So set uh, for one books one through five and six through ten, that he is tracing the whole course of Roman history, and showing that uh, that that the Roman Empire. Has been repeatedly uh, telling us that the that this world is passing away, and that then, in terms of of their gods, their gods are are subs, uh, are after the hum, the human way of dominating the earth. Okay, so that he thinks that uh, that the Pax Romana uh, cannot last because after all what happened in August of 410. So I think August 24th, 410, you have the sack of Rome by the Goths. the eternal city, okay? Eternal city of Rome is sacked. Who is to be blamed? Some would say, Christians are to be blamed. Augustine would say, look at your own history. Come on, read, page after page. There is no civilization upon this earth that is going to last forever. And so he then is uh, because of the reality of the, of the sack of Rome, of barbarians. Uh, uh, he dies on August 28, 430, as the vandals were sacking Hippo. Okay, so, uh, so you think about how he knows that kingdoms of this earth come and go. Anybody who reads history knows this. And you would be deluding yourself if you're in an, uh, a nation, a state, that, um, that pretends to be permanent. That pretends to be permanent. Because this life on earth is passing away. So the Pax Romana, well, um, what kind of Pax is that? That has passed away. And, and so, so he, he wants people to know their history and then to be able to turn to Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who inaugurates us into the heavenly city. Okay, so the Pax catholica, uh, that Christ came for this kind of peace. Okay, well, one last question. Okay. Okay, uh, we, say, we say here in the handout that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit deal with creatures in perfect unison and are perfectly one nature, and that heretical uh, or trinitarian professions don't, uh, they so my question is, they are three entities of the Trinity and they have a role and the images that I got of the divine, um, the divine um, realm were of homogeneity and so I was wondering how do we account for the different roles that the Trinity take in, in our world and, because they're not the same, they're not homogeneous. Okay, Okay. so in terms of Gregory of Nazianzus fought a great deal to articulate what we know as the Catholic Orthodox teaching of the Trinity, that the Trinity is one God, three persons, Greek hypotheses, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, There's actually only one will, and if you go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you'd have some clear statements about how each of the three persons is God whole and entire. So, but uh, this is not modalist. Okay, so rather, so that this is neither subordinationist in terms of the Son lower than the Father, the Holy Spirit lower than the Son, nor is it modalist in terms of the Father is the Old Testament, becomes the Son in the New Testament, becomes the Holy Spirit in, in the church today. No, no. So, in terms of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is the one eternal mystery of God. And then that the father sent his son, born of a woman uh, who, who, who taught, worked miracles, suffered, died, rose from the dead, and gave us the Holy Spirit. So that today people can experience the life of the Trinity, that they can be, they can receive the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and both Gregory and Augustine would talk about the sacraments. So in terms of just the meaning of baptism. And that by being baptized, receiving the grace of the Holy Spirit, then having a sort of peace there with the forgiveness of sins, and then to be able to be in Christ and to see that Christ is with us, okay, Christ in me, me in Christ, and that the church is the body of Christ. For Augustine, uh, that there's only one Christ, head and body, okay, so that we are members of Christ, when you think about that unity. So... This then gets us to go back to the Father because although we are divinized or deified, we're not God, okay? But God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each a person uh, and that uh, in relation to one another, and that the Son and the Holy Spirit are given to us. That way we may be transformed during this life on earth in the sacraments of the church in terms of, of, of living out uh, our, our, our call to be Christian, and to prepare us to be with God and to see God face-to-face. All right, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thamisticinstitute.org donate.